Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. For centuries, the Kingdom of England faced northeast across the northern seas towards Scandinavia. Indeed, under King Canute, England was part of Scandinavia. But with the Norman invasion, even though the Normans were eponymously Northmen, that changed dramatically. Within a few decades, the French and English royal trees began to intertwine, to graft branches to one another, to make love and war sometimes at one and the same time. The story of two families, who were at times pretty much the same family, is the story that Catherine Hanley tells in her new book, Two Houses, Two Kingdoms, A History of France and England, 1100-1300. She was last on the podcast in episode 122, discussing the Empress Matilda, the subject of her previous book, Matilda, Empress, Queen, and Warrior. Catherine Hanley was born in Australia, lives in Somerset in the west of England, and when watching cricket, supports Somerset, Australia, and Tasmania in that order. Kath Hanley, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Hello. Um, I don't think I've ever had an introduction like that before. Thank you very much. (laughs) So I can't think of a better way of beginning uh, uh, than you reading the beginning of your book, because I think it's fantastic. Could you read the the first sentence and paragraph? Yes, let's do that, um, because I think it does set the scene quite nicely. Okay, here we go. This is a book about people. In the 12th and 13th centuries, the personal could influence the political to a great extent, and nowhere is this better exemplified than in the relationship between the ruling houses of France and England, whose members waged war, made peace, and intermarried, sometimes almost simultaneously, in a complex web of relationships. These people, these kings and queens, siblings, children, and cousins, held positions determined by birth, positions that often involve playing a role on the national and international stage from a very young age. Their life stories, their formative experiences and their interpersonal relationships shaped the context of decisions and actions that had the potential to affect the lives and livelihoods of millions. You begin in... um... I always thought that one of the hardest things to grasp about, particularly at this elite level in in the Middle Ages, is the lack of distinction between public and private. Yes. I mean, this is very much an age of personal monarchy. Okay, so I I wouldn't go as far as calling it absolute monarchy, um, because there were some, you know, sort of checks and balances and things like that. But it was very much a personal monarchy, the the person and the personality of the king, or more rarely the queen, generally the king, um, was all important. And, you know, if if the king took a random personal dislike to somebody, that could influence um, the way in which both domestic and international policy um, was was run. Um, and also in, in the king's personal life, there were all sorts of personal influences. His wife, for example, who might be asked by other people to act as an intercessory, intercessory, intercessor. I nearly said that right. Um, uh, and, you know, could could work a personal influence on him. All this was intertwined, this personal and, and this political. And sometimes, 
you know, that worked really well. And um, sometimes it didn't. So it, it's funny because, you know, one of the great themes of British medieval studies since almost its beginning, say in the mid to late 19th century, you know, with Maitland and constitutional studies and that sort of stuff has been the story, the very important story of the bureaucratization of the Middle Ages. Um, nicely kept, beautifully kept records, clever young fellows going off to new schools in Oxford and then Cambridge to learn law, come back, pl argue, please, develop bodies of law, tidiness, bureaucracy, you know, administrative. Uh, yet, at the same time, all that is at the behest of personal rule. Yes. It's, so, and we, and we can lose sight of that in, in our story of bureaucracy and administration and tidiness. We lose fact that this is helping people like Edward I exert their will upon the Welsh. Yes. And in in some ways, the, the book that I've written, you know, might be considered sort of slightly old fashioned because, of mm -hmm. course, you know, in, in writing about medieval studies, we do need to take on board the fact that, you know, as you say, there was this bureaucratization, there were these wonderful, there were governmental systems and there were all the, you know, the what we might call the still call the common people, you know, living their lives and, 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 uh, you know, countries running like that. But I, that's not what my book is about. My book is about the people, the people who were right at the top um, and the ways in which they, you know, interacted with the, interacted with each other um, and the way in which that affected the relationship between these two nations and the course of, you know, the future yeah, and it's uh, and that's and it is um, just as I remembered one of the best soap operas ever written, except that it's true, um, and you know it, it makes I Claudius look like a really bad, you know Mexican uh, telenovela. Uh, you know this is this is this is the good stuff right here. Yeah, who needs Game of Thrones when you have no. France and England in the 12th and 13th centuries? Uh, absolutely. I'm mean, absolutely that to hell with dragons. We, we eventually we'll get canon. Um, that's what dragons are supposed to be anyway. So, but why do you begin 1100, uh, rather than 1066? Um, because okay. everyone's expecting that. Um, and, uh, you begin at sort of where I, I, I just picked up where you, uh, start, uh, by this, we now see it as inevitable, but it's a rather stunning and startling shift from sort of facing northeast towards facing southeast, mm -hmm. you know, from facing where there's a real possibility that, I mean, hell, Scotland, despite all this Celtic fringe was really, if you go to the islands, you'll realize it's, it's, it's as much Norse as anything else. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a real possibility that there's going to be an empire that connects both sides of the North Sea. I mean, it does for a while. Knut's mm -hmm. ruler of Norway, Denmark, parts of Sweden, and England. Um, but instead, they turn right, as it were, and they face southeast. And now there's there'll be an empire across the narrow seas, across mm -hmm. the so so. But why then start in 1100 rather than 1066? Okay. Um, first of all, I have to admit that there's a small kind of practical consideration going on here, which is you know that the longer the time period that you try and cover in a book, the less detailed you're you're able to make it. And you know it would have been fantastic to cover four, five, six hundred years, but it, it would have been kind of quite superficial. So I was quite careful of of choosing my time period. Now, an awful lot has been written about the Norman Conquest and about William the Conqueror. Um, so I actually wanted to start 
after that. Um, and I also wanted to start with a kind of a real bang. It, it starts, uh, I don't want to give away too many spoilers here in case anyone wants to read the book. Um, but we start with a, an extraordinary scene that happened at Westminster at Christmas in the year 1100, uh, when representatives of these two houses, the ruling houses of, of England and of France, um, don't so much meet as collide head on. And I just thought that was a really dramatic moment to start with. And, you know, the, the fact that it actually happened in a year that ended in 00 made it, <laughs> made it quite useful as well as a starting point. Yeah. And, um, you know, similarly, an awful lot has been written later on about the Hundred Years' War. And mm-hmm. if I was even going to get to the start of the Hundred Years' War, I would have ended up having to go right on to the end of the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. And the yeah. scope of the book would have become sort of absolutely enormous. So um, ending the book with the, the the Treaty of Montreuil, which happened in, well, OK, the second half of 1299. <laughs> so nearly. Um, but 1300. I mean, yes, 1300, the, year, the year of... Be the year of the jubilee, the year that Dante goes down to he- goes down to hell and comes back up to paradise. I yeah, mean, I, you know, Good Good Friday to Easter Sunday, thirty. It's great to end on thirteen. It's like the yeah. it's like the best year in the Middle Ages. And it's 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 also, I mean, this this treaty that brought an end to what was the latest war at the time between England and France um, also ended with um, two more intermarriages between the two royal houses and so that was just a really perfect point to end so it's kind of almost like oh is this going to be happily ever after you know we're at peace now there's a marriage here there's a marriage there and it's all going to be lovely and then you kind of got this epilogue to the book that sort of goes spoiler alert (laughs) it's it's not going to be happily ever after it's a both of them are really good reminders that you you have the 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 marriage the wedding of isabel uh edward the second and isabel um uh, and you know um, what's nice about it is that you keep it in the you keep it shaped by that moment rather than looking forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so based on all the evidence that everyone has at that wedding, this is fantastic. What a handsome, dashing fellow he is! Yeah, you know, it's she's, all going to be She's lovely. twelve, but, but yeah. pretty. But you know, it's all going to be fantastic. They're going to have lots of sons. Uh, and everybody's interrelated, you know, everyone's, yeah. you know, the groom's cousin and the bride's uncle and, you know, it's all going to be lovely. And at the yes. time, and actually one of the things I think we can forget when we write about history is, is, is to look back and see that the way things happened was the way that they were always going to happen and that it was sort of preordained. And it just wasn't. What One of the really interesting things about writing this book specifically about people was to remember that these were people who were living in the moment and they were living in a time, you know, so what, you know, what happened to them afterwards was not preordained. It happened because of the decisions and the actions that these people took at the time that these things were actually happening. And I think there is kind of... T- a bit of a tendency to look back and go, well, you know, that was always going to happen, but actually it wasn't always going to happen. Well, let's, um, there's, there's, it's 200 years. There's a lot in it. Um, So I I had the idea that we'll look at certain beads on this string of, of, of decades. Um, And it makes a lot of sense. And I, I never really thought about the first war between France and England which is really the first war about France and England, which is really a sort of an epic beginning, considering that France and England will now fight 
um, more or less every other decade. Yes. <laughs> un- until, well, with a few uh, exceptions during the Walpole administration, perhaps, uh, until 1815. So this is one of the beginning of one of the great titanic struggles between countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where all ma- the roots are coming from. Yeah. Yeah. This is where the roots are coming from. So let's talk about that, that first war. Um, since it's one of your favorite subjects too, is the, the English king and then yeah. the French king. And then, and then, and then one of the, one of the many, many Louis that France. Yes. Yes. Every single French king who features in this book is called either Philip or Louis. Um, yeah, it's, which, it's a little you know, confusing. Yeah. I know there wasn't really a lot I could do about that, but uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, we just try, uh, we'll, we'll disambiguate them as we go along. So at, at, so this first war at the beginning, okay, we've got two kings who are perhaps slightly less familiar to the sort of general reader of the um, the Middle Ages. We've got in England, we've got Henry the First, and in France we have Louis the Sixth, um, who suffers. French kings generally have epithets rather than numbers, and he suffers from having gone down in history as Louis the Fat. Um, which I think is quite unfair because, you know, Louis the Incredibly Clever might have been a, <laughs> you know, a, a better one. But, you know, that's 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 the way the cookie crumbles. Now, Henry and Louis are actually both on slightly shaky ground to start with when it comes to their kingship. Right. Henry the First in England has come to the throne in slightly dubious circumstances following the accidental death of his elder brother, William Rufus, and the fact that he has leapfrogged his eldest brother, Robert Curthose, to, to take the throne himself. And so Henry is rather unusually a king of England who has a living elder brother, um, which puts you on sort of slightly dodgy ground. Um, and, and meanwhile, over in France, Louis VI is king, in inverted commas, of really only a very small royal domain centred on Paris. He is technically the overlord of lots of other places, counties and duchies in France, but he he, he doesn't really have a lot of direct control. So these two kings, both on slightly dodgy ground, what's the best way to distract your own people's attention from your, your kind of domestic problems? You start a foreign conflict. Okay, now Louis was incredibly adept at exploiting the divisions in Henry's family. Um, for example, by pushing the claims of Henry's nephew, William Cleto, who was the son of Henry's older brother. So William Cleto is the eldest son of the eldest son of William the Conqueror. And therefore, a lot of people thought he should be the king rather than Henry. Um, And Louis just really, really used this to his advantage um, in, in pushing these claims to create lots of division. Meanwhile, Henry arranged for the marriage of his daughter Matilda, who we, we know all about, um, to the German emperor, who was geographically on Louis's other side in an attempt to surround them. Um, and, and France was, for a while, almost in danger of being kind of entirely wiped off the map. If there had been a big push from Henry in England and Henry, everyone, everyone's called Henry as well as Philip and Louis, Henry, the Emperor Henry, on the other side, you know, France could have just been sort of wiped out. But Louis managed to get all of his disparate counts and dukes and lords together in a great big show of sort of French unity. And this is the moment at which really, or I would argue at least, really France becomes the nation of France rather than 
you know, here's the royal domain and here's all these other bits. You know, that they all really came together. A few places that the king's afraid of traveling between because he might get kidnapped by one of his, you know, one of his vassals, quote unquote. Um, And so this war, although not, you know, terribly well known these days, um, just sort of really set the scene between, um, you know, the then there was sort of a big divide through Normandy because of course Henry the first as well as being the king of England is also the duke of Normandy so there's a lot of toing and froing and an awful lot of, what, sort of castles Kath, changing hands yeah Kath what I what I thought when I was reading this is that um you know people have given a lot of attention in terms of medieval statesmanship to like the Edwards well Edward the first and Edward the third mm-hmm. but you know I know Henry is an ambiguous figure in your head but you write so well about him in, in the previous book but you know Henry and Louis. I mean, this is this this is really the most formidable matchup of French and English. It's the most formidable matchup until the Edward the First versus Philip. But and arguably, well, we'll see how. I, I, basically, they it's diamond cut diamond this time. Yeah, There's I mean, usually, this, is, this is really it's it's amazing the two of them together. There's so much intellectual firepower. Yeah, I was uh, just that's exactly the word I was going to use. It's the greatest intellectual matchup um yeah. uh, that was th- uh, that was happening between the two nations and that you know they're both such clever men i mean yeah. they weren't scared to fight either neither of them were scared to you know get in the saddle and put his helmet on and, and go for a battle but they are more known for being very very clever um and of course it was towards the end of his reign that louis you know pulled off an absolute masterstroke by taking advantage of an opportunity that came his way, which which was that Duke William of Aquitaine um, set off on a pilgrimage, leaving his two daughters, Eleanor and, and uh, Petronella, um, under Louis's guardianship. And he had no son, Duke William of Aquitaine, so Eleanor was his heir. And while he was on his pilgrimage, he died. Um, and so Louis the Sixth, although he was very ill and and within all weeks of the end of his life at the time, immediately took advantage of this for the benefit of the French crown, and dispatched his son South, who was married to Eleanor, a week before Louis Senior finally passed away. And you know, if so, he was still sharp as anything, you know, right to the end of his life. And uh, of course the getting Aquitaine linked to the the French crown was was a masterstroke. And yet we also see here, as you refer to 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 one point, the medieval sense of the the, the fortune's wheel. Mm-hmm. Um the, the reason why back to Dante again, the reason why he puts for he puts fortune somewhere in hell. Um but uh, basically that even in the providence of God there is fortune. Somehow mm-hmm. fortune is allowed to operate. Yeah. So I mean, here's Louis, here's the, the Duke dying on pilgrimage. Here's Louis in the process of dying. It's still compassmentous enough to be able to direct his affairs. Mm-hmm. Here's Henry the first, clever, clever, clever. And yet he there's the disaster of the white ship and he loses his heir and he has to scramble. He has to figure out what to do. And with that yeah. leads to all the sort of events that we discussed in episode 122 mm-hmm. but with Matilda. Uh, yeah. But then, wait, there's more. I mean, <laughs> there's... Yet. No, because <laughs> Louis and El- Eleanor will not get along with her husband. Correct. And she won't produce an heir, a, a boy. And it would seem that she's, you know, she won't, that that field won't produce an heir, no matter how much you plow it. Yeah. And I, yet, 
when she when she goes, she produces lots of boys. So it's like this is this is the soap opera pit. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a re- I mean, it's a recurring theme th- throughout the book is the incredible importance for a medieval king of having an undisputed male heir. And, and interestingly, this is where kind of fortune's wheel goes round and round, because if, if you look at any given time um, in this period, what you've, you've very rarely got both houses in the same position. You've either got, like we have here, Henry I with no son and Louis VI, who's got six of them, um, or later on, you know, you've got Henry II with his four sons, while Louis VII can't produce one for trying. Um, and and then later on, you have again, you have Edward I, who has terrible problems producing a, a surviving son. It was so important to have that male heir because it made the succession smooth. I mean, I don't go too much back to Matilda here, but one of the reasons that the the succession there was not smooth was that Henry the First died without leaving a son. If Matilda had been, nobody would have been saying she shouldn't have had the throne. That's that's what it is, and and um, and it just saved an awful lot of uncertainty, and that the Capetians were in the end, exceptionally good at this. You know, they had direct father-son succession all the way from the year 987 through to the 1320s. Something that the English kings could only look on, you know, in jealous, great jealousy. One of my, one of my professors, actors, I think it was John Baldwin, who wrote about Philip Augustus, said that one of the central and most important political facts of, of the Middle Ages was that the Capetians were able to produce not only lots of males but surviving males mm-hmm. in every generation and mm-hmm. it's and it's really quite extraordinary how rarely that fails all the way through Louis the 14th Louis the 15th i mean mm-hmm. it's you know they they it, some somehow they had it they were able to do that yeah when the, when the capetians became the bourbons too i mean you can you could look at that the other way around i mean how many sons is too many when it yeah, comes right. to, you know, do they all fight with each other? And, and again, that's a question that you, you can come back to. But the golden rule is that you should always have at least one surviving son and preferably two. So you've got yeah. the spare as well. And, and this, of course, is what did not happen when Louis VII was married to Eleanor of Aquitaine, which yeah. caused all sorts of problems. Well, let's talk I mean, about El- Eleanor. Oh, let's uh, talk about Eleanor. Let's do that. Because there could so- hardly be a better example of how personal relationships could could influence national and international politics i mean could there really no there can't be so she is the she is definitely the the glamour woman of the medieval europe i think that if people have heard about one medieval queen uh it's probably eleanor of aquitaine yeah actually she um, she's not my favorite but we're going to come on to no, my favorite gonna, later she's on. not mine I, she's not mine <laughs> either but um but maybe just because i'm a contrarian and everyone she's the one pe- person that they uh they know but um if you were having to describe Eleanor to someone who'd never heard of her, how would you do it? Um, she was a force of nature. <laughs> okay. She was, I mean, okay, by coincidence, she was born into the correct family, if you like. She was the eldest daughter of the Duke of Aquitaine and she had no brothers. That was not something that she had any control over herself. That was that was just the position in life that she was given. But like a lot of medieval or medieval women really um you know life is what you make it 
you you start with whatever you're given and then you have to make of life what you can um and she certainly did she had very little choice in having to marry louis louis the seventh um although it did make her queen of france which you know is quite a good promotion um but a lot of what she was able to do after that did come down to her own personal choices um i mean yes the the, the official narrative was that louis divorced her or annulled rather than divorce I means something different um but there's no question at all that she wanted out of that marriage just as much as 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 he did and then it was there's no other explanation that it was her choice to marry Henry, who was at the time Henry, the Duke of Normandy, and who later became Henry II of England. And her choice to to marry uh, the future Henry II set all kinds of things in train, some of which could have been predicted at the time, like Louis not going to be very impressed with this, but other things that you just couldn't predict, like the fact that, you know, they would have all these sons who would fight against each other. And that all stemmed from, you know, one woman's personal decision. So the, we should say, um, we should set because this is a, there's a different vision here of what England, the Angevin empire is than people have in their heads. Uh, and that a lot of that is a lot of her ability to go mm-hmm. from queen of France to, you know, eventually queen of England is because mm-hmm. she is the heiress to Aquitaine. So what That's is Aquitaine? Correct. So Aquitaine is a very large duchy in the south southwest of of france um it covered at the time approximately one third of france's entire geographical area so we're talking a very significant um uh duchy a very significant sort of piece of land going on here now officially the king of france was the overlord of the duke of aquitaine but up until Louis VI, as we were saying earlier, this was kind of a very loose relationship. And of course, Aquitaine um, is quite a long way from Paris. So it's quite difficult for the King of France to have any direct oversight. But the King of France being married to the Duchess of Aquitaine, and she is Duchess of Aquitaine in her own right, mm-hmm. um, which means that Louis then in right of his wife becomes the Duke of Aquitaine. Now, if the two of them had had a son, one son, that son would have become both King of France from his father's inheritance and Duke of Aquitaine from his mother's inheritance. And it might have been that at that stage, Aquitaine actually became part of the royal domain as opposed to next, being a separate duchy. And the next 300 years of European history would be very, very different. Exactly. But because they didn't have that son, um, Eleanor married Henry instead. So any son that Louis now has by a second or subsequent wife will become the King of France, but has no claim on Aquitaine because Eleanor is the Duchess in her own right. So any son of hers, regardless of who the father is, will become the next Duke of Aquitaine. So in in divorcing um, Eleanor, Louis Yes, he gained the opportunity to marry somebody else and perhaps father a son, but he lost about a third of the area that was under his control at that time. So it was not, you know, a straightforward decision. And already at this point, since William came over from Normandy, Normandy 
is mm-hmm. part of the of the personal domain of the King of England. That's quite right. It's Normandy is not part of the Kingdom of England. Right. Um, the person of the king, so Henry the First, and later on Henry the Second, and the others. So he, um, Henry the Second was both the King of England and the Duke of Normandy. But that doesn't mean that Normandy was part of England. So he's the king of England and he's the sovereign there. But for Normandy, he's the Duke of Normandy. And for that, he therefore owes allegiance to the king of France. And this makes the relationship even more complicated. And it's it's even worse since uh, dear Matilda has married into the the Geoffrey Plantagenet Mm -hmm. and brought Anjou into the Mm -hmm. family, as it were. Yep. Uh, is Brittany. So now, like, basically, if we looked at a map of modern France, the mm-hmm. whole seaboard, more yep. or less. Yeah, know, so Normandy, Brittany, Anjou, Maine, Terrain, and right down through Gascony and, and Aquitaine, right down to the Pyrenees and the border with Spain, all that sort of side of France. It doesn't belong to the Kingdom of England, but it is under the control of Henry II, who is the King of England, as well as being in charge of all those areas of France. And he's busy, you know, trying to consolidate control over Ireland too. So this is the Angevin Empire. Mm-hmm. This is the, the this is the sort of the the lands that adhere to the person of the 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 ruler that the the fellow who is king of England, but also then is also you know the mm-hmm. duke or count or of all these other lands that. that and there are, all are very very few people in history who could have pulled that off. Who, who yeah. could have been in charge of all of those places at the same time. And Henry II is one of them. But really, he only um, was able to do it because he was married to Eleanor, because the nobles in Aquitaine, their personal allegiance was to her, not to him. Mm-hmm. Which makes it very difficult when, rather like Louis VI, he discovers that Eleanor is, you know, fun for a while, but maybe problematic in a long-term wife situation. I, it, it's interesting that, that there's something about Eleanor that uh, she gets under people's skin when they have to live with her. I, I'm just yeah. suggesting. There's only two data points. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, the relationship was certainly troubled. Um, it's interesting, though, because people talk about, you know, they say, oh, well, but Eleanor was such an independent woman and such a feisty woman and things like that. When have you ever heard those adjectives used about men? Oh, when has ever, when mm. ever anyone ever said that Henry II was feisty or independent? I mean, please. Well, how, about, how, about, how about mad? I mean, that's what everyone <laughs> said at the same time, you know, I mean, that they that all the Angevins were crazy. And, you know, I mean, what's the, aren't they somehow linked with the... Um, Lord of the, the Hunt or something like that. There was a legend that they were descended from the devil, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, that. I mean, so yeah, the answer is yes. A lot of contemporaries had very bad things to say about Henry. Yeah, a lot of contemporaries had a lot of bad things to say about, about everyone. Um, yeah, exactly. But this, again, kind of brings us back to our main point, that the personal relationships between these people influenced wider concerns if henry and eleanor had always got on beautifully well and it had all been lovey-dovey and they hadn't had this conflict you know again history might have been quite quite different um and and eleanor actually still had a fair bit of influence in france 
Um, she, I, we don't want to go too much into going over the ground of her and her sons and everything because that's kind of been done to death. That we've got some slightly different things to talk about. But one of the most important things that that Eleanor did was that um, towards the end of her life, she travelled to Castile in person, and it was she who made the selection of. Blanche of Castile, one of the several available princesses in Castile, to be the future Queen of France. And, you know, again, if that's not a personal decision that had a massive impact on a wider scale, um, I don't know what is. We'll see about that. Yeah. Um, So, uh, amazingly enough, once again, the Wheel of Fortune turns and Mm -hmm. they, Henry and Eleanor have several sons, but ultimately, um, by 1215, it's the dullest knife in the drawer who becomes <laughs> king. Out of all of them, the survivor is like yeah. the worst. Uh, John, the only king in English history named John, because no one wants to be John II, I think probably is, is for sure. Actually, one um, of Edward the first sons who died in childhood was called John. So we might yeah. have had one later on, but that was, uh, that one been, of his that other sons was called Al. Yeah, one of his other sons was called Alfonso. So we might have had a King Alfonso <laughs> as well. Um, but anyway, yeah, but, John. But yeah, I mean, he's he's like, he would be a prototype. Machiavelli would have loved him, except for the mm-hmm. fact that he was a Machiavellian hero except for the fact that he was completely incompetent in almost everything, most of the yeah. time. I mean, there have been sporadic attempts to, you know, rehabilitate John and his reputation, and I'm afraid I, I just don't buy it. He was just spectacularly bad at every aspect of medieval he, kingship. Yeah, he um, just, he couldn't help himself from being vicious when he should have been forgiving, you know. Mm-hmm. He just, yeah, he just was a, he was just, he's an idiot. And yeah. people have to write a doctoral thesis about something. So if they want to rehabilitate him, good <laughs> luck. And I, I hope I hope you pass your viva. But you know, um, there you go. I think I think the best summation I've ever seen of John is that one one historian in a book said John couldn't resist kicking a man when he was down, um, which is fair enough. To which a second historian then quoted and added, "The problem was he also couldn't keep his own balance while he was doing so." Yeah, that's um, exactly it. Which, uh, yeah, it's just so. He was he was hopeless. Um, you know, if, if you want to find out all the real background to, you know, why and how he was hopeless, please, please do. Um, but again, we're coming back to personal rule here. OK, so kings had personal rules. So, you know, the buck stops with them. But they couldn't rule without the consent and the support of their nobility. And this is where John kind of really came a cropper. And he's a really good example of how it could all go spectacularly wrong if you didn't manage those personal relationships correctly. Um, so as I'm sure uh, people know, you know, his nobles eventually got so fed up with him that they forced him to agree to Magna Carta. And the second he'd agreed to Magna Carta, he reneged on it. Um, and the nobles then realised that, you know, if they couldn't control him, they were simply going to have to get rid of him. Um, which is which is what they started to do. Now, their problem at this point was um, they weren't, you know, like radical anti-monarchists. They weren't trying to get rid of the concept of monarchy as a whole. They just wanted somebody who was a better king than John. And uh, where are they going to find one? He's got <laughs> no surviving brothers. His only nephew in the male line, he's already murdered. Um, you know, where, where are we going to go? And strangely that- enough... Where, what these nobles did was they looked across the channel to the stable and popular um, 
dynasty that was on the throne of France. And so they sailed over, a delegation of them sailed over to Paris and offered the throne of England to Louis. This is the man, he was the future Louis VIII. At the time, he was the son and heir of Philip Augustus, who was still on the throne at the time. Um, and yeah, they they a delegation of English barons sailed to France and offered the crown of England to a French prince. And if that's not a good who story... Said, who said yes? <laughs> who, said, who said yes, please? Yeah. yeah. Uh, while daddy was very circumspect and I'm not really involved and you and, and my hands are, you know, no strings here. Yeah, and then he yeah. came over and was amazingly enough. This is, there's the old story. Um, it's the old lie that England hasn't been invaded since 1066, I think, which neglects like 1688 when a Dutch army actually did invade the West country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it neglects this. This is a, this is a major French army or of supporters of, of Louis who, yeah. Come, come with him and then begin to wage war on behalf of the barons against uh, John. Yes. Um, so he, uh, Louis arrived in May of uh, 1216 and he was, I mean, and this is just an astonishing moment in English history that sh- should be better known. He would probably claim it wasn't an invasion because he was coming to claim the rightful throne that he'd been yeah, offered anyway. Sure. But of course, he, yes. he went with his supporters to London where the gates were opened, he was welcomed into London and cheered through the streets as the new King of England. Um, and yeah, it's unprecedented. It's never happened before or since. So, you know, the son of the King of France has been, has been welcomed through London and, and cheered as uh, the, the, the King of, a King of England. Now, I mean, uh, you know, there's spoiler alerts here in that obviously, um, if this had all gone perfectly for Louis, you'd all know about him already. <laughs> because he would have been king for years so clearly you're all you're waiting for me now to tell you how it all went wrong um and yeah there was some uh resistance in england but um what what happened in october of 1216 um so a few months after louis had arrived was that king john did the only useful thing that he'd ever done in his entire life which was he unexpectedly died Mm um and this kind of pulled the rug out from underneath the baron's feet right because what happened was the the faction who was supporting king john immediately declared john's eldest son to be the king and declared him king henry this is uh, the chap we know as henry the third um and he had just had his ninth birthday so he's a little boy And this suddenly changed all the optics of what Louis was doing. He'd arrived in England as the sort of heroic saviour here to save the realm against the evil tyranny of the monstrous King John. Um, And now he's a foreign bully boy trying to take the rest, the crown off an innocent nine-year-old child. Almost literally Um, taking candy from a baby. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so, I mean, long story short, there were sort of various defections and uh, some of uh, some bits of Louis's army were defeated in a battle at Lincoln and and one at Sandwich, although not him personally, interestingly. Um, And eventually by sort of September 1217, so a year after John's death, it was clear this wasn't sort of really going anywhere. Um, And so, yeah, he accepted a great big payoff. 
And it's, it's, it's quite, again, quite unusual to be an unsuccessful claimant to the throne of England, who's not only survived, but sailed away with a big load of cash in his pocket um, and not better having... For, better for the entire experience. Yeah, I mean, that's not, a, not having been... He, he, he personally hadn't been defeated on the field. He just kind of went, yeah, fair enough. Uh, I mean, <sighs> they had to be a bit careful in paying him off because if they tried to humiliate him, they had to bear in mind that at the back of their mind, they knew that one day he was going to be the king of France. Whatever happened in England, he was going to be the next king of France. And they didn't want to antagonise him too much because if in 10 years' time, when he's got the entire resources of the French crown at his disposal, he decides to come back, um, you know, this is not going to do them any good. So it was, it was a very, very carefully worded peace agreement. Nobody's fault. Nobody's fault. <laughs> just uh, it's all fine. Um and so, yeah, Louis just sort of sailed away back to France, where a few years uh, later he succeeded in probably the calmest and most peaceful transition of power that's ever been in medieval Europe um, to be the king of France. So we mentioned you mentioned before that Eleanor of Aquitaine um, had chosen Blanche of Castile mm-hmm. as indeed um, the, the 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 wife for this future Louis VIII. Mm-hmm. Um, and amongst the strong personalities of this book, well, the three of them are, are women, but Matilda, you've already done another book. So some mm-hmm. of the, the biggest people in this book are actually Eleanor Aquitaine and Blanche mm-hmm. of Castile. So yeah. we should, let's, let's spend some time on Blanche. Uh, oh, what is Castile at the time? And, you know, she, she, basically becomes co-ruler of France mm-hmm. for significant periods of the next, what, 40 years? Mm-hmm. 30, she, 30 to 40 years? Yeah. she she's The role that she played is was kind of more akin to being a sort of female king almost rather yeah. than a queen. So just to recap very, very quickly, she'd been brought from her homeland of Castile. Castile was one of the Spanish kingdom. What we now know as Spain was divided into several... Um, independent kingdoms, Castile, Leon, Aragon, um, Navarre. And, yeah, Navarre, and Portugal. Portugal, um, yeah. And, and then the south and, and of Spain and then the was south, under and Muslim, then the Muslim control. The Muslim yeah. control, yeah. Um, and she had been brought by Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was her grandmother, her maternal grandmother, uh, to France, and she was married off as part of a peace treaty. Okay, this happens to a lot of young royal girls at the time they are simply told that you know they're basically the peace offering and they're going to get married to somebody they never met and they've got to make the best of it from then on so she was married to louis who was then the the heir to the french throne in in the year 1200 they were both 12 at the time um and then after being married they went back to paris and lived in king philip augustus's court now a lot of these arranged marriages were absolute disasters this one completely wasn't. They they formed an incredible bond, attachment for everything. All the contemporaries agree that they, you know, they absolutely adored each other um, as they um, grow. They they suffered terribly from infant mortality. They had twelve children, of whom only five survived to grow up, which was just awful. Um, but interestingly, although she was the granddaughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine and the niece of King John of England. Um, she became entirely 
French, entirely capacious in her outlook. She would support her husband Louis in whatever he did. Uh, while he was in England, she was riding round France, raising troops for him, and uh, you know, sending reinforcements over and, and doing all this this kind of stuff. Now, in 1223, they became the king and queen of France. Philip Augustus uh, died um, of natural causes, having reigned for 40-something years. And this was a very, very peaceful transfer of power. Um, so Louis, by this stage, was in his mid-30s. He'd been the heir to the throne since he was born. Um, there was no other possible contender that could come out of the woodwork. He'd already been his father's right-hand man for many years and they were crowned and it was lovely. They were going to be the king and queen for a long, long time and have lots of children and it was all going to be great. Um, and then three years later, while when he was only 39, uh, Louis died. He died of dysentery um, on, a, on a campaign, the Albigensian Crusade, which we won't get into now because that's... You want me to get into that. Was... <laughs> but everyone's always dying of dysentery. Because yes, people dies. are dying, yeah, soldiers dying of dysentery. Uh, so mm-hmm. Blanche now finds herself um, a widow. She has seven children who are all aged 12 or under, and she is pregnant, heavily pregnant, with an eighth. Uh, she's absolutely devastated. The man she's been married to for more than two-thirds of her life has just died. Her 12-year-old son is now the King of France with all that that entails and all the threats that might come from England and Germany and everywhere. And it would be enough to make, you know, a lot of people collapse in a heap, but not Blanche of Castile. She had been named um, by her husband on his deathbed as their son's regent to rule until he came of age. So young Louis is obviously only 12. He can't reign in his own name just yet so she was um crowned along with him or at the coronation as well as the nobles having to take an oath of allegiance to the young king they took one to her and for the next kind of eight or nine years she ran france incredibly efficiently incredibly well she saw off all the threats to her son's throne she incidentally in her spare time managed to sort out the Albigensian crusade and come to a peace treaty and crucially she did it while having a very very close and and efficient relationship with her son right regencies yeah, there's no, there's none of the conflict that one expects to eventually have between a, a 17 year old or a 16 year old future yeah. king and, and his regent, whether or, or even between the 17 and their mom. They yeah. have a very, yeah. they have a very, it would seem that they have a healthy relationship for the rest of their life. And, and yeah. so he yeah. depends upon her as much as his, his father depended upon. Yes, yeah, exactly. Her. And I mean, one of the, the most, you know, one of the things that indicates that their the regency was incredibly successful is that actually we can't really pinpoint where it ended. <laughs> yeah. There was there was none of this. You know, like sometimes if there's been an antagonistic relationship in a regency, then the second the, the, the young king comes of age, he goes, right, that's it now. It's over. You go. I'm in charge. And what actually happened is that, I mean, all the way through her regency, Blanche had been um, uh, making orders in Louis's name anyway so it was always as though like he was the king and, and she was just doing it but and then as he got older it was just a really gradual process that she just involved him more and more and more and more in what she was doing until they were basically doing it together and then by the time he reached the age of majority he was 
sort of off and running, you know, like learning to ride a bike would stabilize. Yeah. Now, in a way. now Blanche, know, is, Blanche is certainly in the annals of medieval parenting since her son be, is not only king eventually, but also a saint. A saint, so, yes. Saint Louis, parenting saint Louis. goals. Parenting, parenting goals, yeah. yes, indeed. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, and she, and and for that matter, another of her sons, who's a little bit, uh, I would say, let's let's just call him morally ambiguous, Charles of Anjou, yes, goes the on youngest, to, yeah, go, goes on, yeah, that's right, the one she's pregnant with when her when her husband, that's died, right, born right? posthumously, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, uh, who is an extraordinarily important figure in medieval history as well, um, and in his own in his own right, um, but uh, the. Um, to what extent is uh, does Louis become Louis because of Blanche? I mean, to what ex- uh, to what extent is uh, he his mother's son? Uh, to a great extent, I think is is the short answer. I mean, uh, she was known to be um, very pious, mm-hmm. um, and well, she and her husband both both had been. So there was a very sort of religion heavy upbringing um of you know morality and and religion and the church and 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 everything and a great respect for the church um so louis was very much brought up in that atmosphere i mean of course a lot of it is due to his own personality he had he and his three surviving younger brothers were all brought up in that atmosphere and some of them were more saintly than others i think it's Mm -hmm. fair to say um but yeah, the fact that he had such a close relationship with Blanche, I mean, it was a bit unfortunate for the others, of course, because when young Louis became king, Blanche had to focus her attention almost exclusively on him because mm-hmm. he's the king. And that's a difficult thing to be when you're 12, which I think meant that perhaps she didn't have quite so much influence with with the others. Um, so it's a mixture, really, of, of, of nature and nurture. He certainly was of our a sort of ascetic religious uh, type personality of his own but his his his, his upbringing at his his mother's knee um was certainly very important but there's that, there's yeah. also something um i mean this is joanville his chronicler but d- when describing louis um administering justice from beneath a tree mm-hmm. you know very casuals damn it really i mean there's something there's something um there's something refreshingly simple and direct about Louis, which I think makes him a, yeah, in, in, a much more interesting. He did at one point, or so some contemporaries say, con, um, consider becoming a monk. He recognised mm-hmm. that his first duty was to be the king, but he did at one point um, apparently suggest that as soon as his own eldest son came of age, that he should be allowed to retire to a monastery. Um, and his 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 wife wasn't terribly impressed with that suggestion um and he didn't he didn't do it in the end um but um yeah certainly very aesthetic he he didn't he didn't go for fine clothes or big feasts or get drunk or you know anything like that and it even to the point really of being a bit of a killjoy you know when he came back from his crusade having been away for six years from his kingdom leaving blanche in control of the kingdom while he was away um you know the the streets of paris were full of people celebrating and dancing and fountains and you know to celebrate the king coming back and he sort of basically moaned about how they shouldn't have bothered you know because it was all a (laughs) it was all frivolous and you know so he might have it's a very complex person you know in some ways he's he's a really really excellent king and under his rule france 
know, knew the greatest extended period of peace that it had known for a long time. But in 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 other ways, you, especially looking at him with a modern lens, you can go, mm, some of those traits are actually quite unpleasant. Well, I mean, there's um, there's one, one. I mean, one big problem is that he insists on going on crusade when he doesn't kind of have to. Yeah. And and then he uh, all the, the is it the the both, I mean, he takes all his brothers with him. Yeah, all his brothers yeah. and his sons and everything. And you're like, oh, that's quite not, dangerous not, from a yeah. dynastic point of view. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, when he was on his, he, he is the, the first crusade, the one he was away from 1248 to 1254, he, he came back safely. But the second one that he went on almost wiped out the family. He he went with his th- he, three eldest sons to the crusade and then um when they got to tunis they all fell ill and one of his sons died another one of his sons was near death and then he himself died as well and i mean that could have wiped out the entire you know royal family that could have left france in the hands of his eldest son's son who was uh, yeah his grandson who was about four at the time four or five years old which would have been a disaster well blanche would have have still been able to sort things out no no she was she was she she was was dead dead by then oh that's too bad okay um so um yeah it's in he felt that his his duty to christendom was to take part in this crusade but arguably and this is the argument that some people made more or less loudly or quietly at the time was that his greater duty was to France and the future mm-hmm. of its monarchy. And that actually it was very irresponsible to just ship the entire adult male population of the Royal house out and, and, and put them at risk. Um, so let's finish up with the, the two, the personality clash of the two, uh, the two iron Kings. Yes. Okay. So um, when the, uh, Edward now, the first, yeah. And, yeah. But also the uh, Philip the Fair, as he's often mm-hmm. called. But you, there's another name for him. I mean, other than a, a real sob. Um, but what, what's the, what's what's <laughs> yeah? What's he's um, so for, as we mentioned earlier, French French kings are, are, are normally given epithets rather than the numbers. Yeah. So he's Philippe le Bel, Philip the Fair. He's also le Roi de Fer, which means the Iron King. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a famous series of novels um, called called the Iron Kings. Um, by a French writer called Maurice Troyes. I think they're available in, in English translation now. Very good. Um, yeah, so after long, there were long, long reigns in both England and France um, uh, for a lot of the 13th century. So uh, Henry III, whom we last saw being nine years old, uh, reigned uh, for more than 50 years in the end. And in in um, France, because of course Louis IX had come to the throne when he was only 12, uh, he reigned for... Oh, I can't add up in my head, 40-something years. 40-something years. Uh, yeah, so when they both died, it was a real kind of end of an era. They they died within two years of each other, and it was a real kind of end of era vibe going on. Um, and what was also quite interesting was that Henry III and, and Louis IX were married to two sisters. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. So the following kings of France, who were... Henry's son, Edward I, who was in his 30s by the time he became king. Um, and f- the short-lived Philip III, Louis' son, 
um, were first cousins. Philip III didn't didn't last very long, and then he he also died of dysentery on a military campaign, leaving the throne to his own son Philip IV. I wish they weren't all called. I could go back in time and go, please stop calling your sons Philip and Louis. Stop it. Um, anyway, so Philip IV, who was uh, seventeen at the time he became king. Now, these men were both very, very different from their predecessors, right? Edward I um, was a very kind of bellicose specimen, uh, very different from his peace-loving father. Um, and and Philip IV, who, you know, as I say, came to the throne at the age of 17 and really had to sort of hit the ground running, um, embroiled in, in various conflicts. Um, he too was quite bellicose. So with him on the French throne and Edward on the English throne, there was going to be trouble brewing. Um, and it, it kind of, it didn't really start with a bang. It started with some sort of scrappy little fights between rival sailors and rival towns. And then, but then it escalated when some English soldiers actually attacked um, a French town, French territory, which sort of, crossed the line if you like um and philip then responded by confiscating edward's remaining french lands so in the meantime while all this has been going on that we've been talking about uh, the french uh, king's royalty have gradually been making more and more inroads into the lands that the english king used to own right king john's lost normandy um henry the third has lost bits of poitou and and bits of the northern half of aquitaine so by this stage Ed, edward only um has the the southern end of aquitaine which is is gascony and philip as his quote overlord um for this this land confiscated it from him um because of english soldiers attacking french territory and then it all sort of disintegrated and everybody started accusing everybody else of bad faith and edward said this had been philip's plan all along because he wanted to get him out of gascony and it, and it all went very much downhill and then because of loads of marriage alliances and alliances all over the place their conflict ended up dragging in scotland and flanders and some of the spanish kingdoms and you know it's it threatened to really destabilize quite a lot of your just can I just, I mean, there's a there's a way in which both Edward Edward and Philip are so much alike in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, here is, I think they're both really offended by powers existing in what they think of as theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, for example, Wales. Mm-hmm. That that would be, you know, this is supposed to be the this is supposed to be England. What's that mm-hmm. doing there? I'll, I'll, so I'll have mm-hmm. I'll be having that. Thank you. Yes, so, Scotland. So, <laughs> Scotland, you know, a little bit more ambiguous, but mm-hmm. um, still. But also, you know, Aquitaine. Obviously, Philip yeah. is like I. I am, you know, the in the in the tradition of Philip Augustus, my great predecessor. I'm mm-hmm. going to consolidate power here, and I'm mm-hmm. going to bring it. I'm going to tidy up. So yeah. these two Iron Kings are also like the 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 uh, dustpan and the dustpan kings too. They want to like tidy things up, rearrange things, you know, put things in the better order. I mm-hmm. mean, and they find that, that this lack of, this lack of uh, the clear line, this is kind of offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And they just, you know, they sort of, they don't get out. So they are first cousins once yeah. removed. Yeah. Um, so there's sort of family relationships there as well. Um, not that I think they were, you know, inviting each other around for Christmas dinner or anything. Um, we'll get to that. <laughs> I have a question um, about that. Yeah, <laughs> e- each of them had his own 
pride, his own sense of entitlement, his own sense of power, his own sense of his own and his dynasty's importance. And yeah, this just brings us back once again to the, you know, this personal aspect. You know, well, if they'd if they'd got on really well, this this might not have happened. But the fact that the fact that they didn't really like each other is is one of the reasons I think why these sort of little bits of conflict here and there were allowed to just oh I'll turn a blind eye while my English sailors attack your your French trade fleet or you know that kind of thing because that'll really annoy Philip but actually I can claim I had nothing to do with it sort of thing and and really by 1300 Edward is overextended I mean he can't yeah. he can't build these enormous I mean gigantic and technologically sophisticated castles across Wales, Mm -hmm. suppress the Irish and defeat the Scots while at the same time preserving Aquitaine and supporting Flanders. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, I mean, uh, even a, uh, even if if someone actually ruled Northern Italy and had the wealth available for Northern Italy, no one really does. They still wouldn't have enough money to undertake Mm -hmm. that program. Yeah. And it was, it was all getting very, very expensive. And also their, their ages meant that they're sort of, respective situations turned round a bit. So when Philip IV first came to the throne, he's 17 and inexperienced, and he's got an opponent who's nearly 40 and, and you know, uh, with a lot of military experience. And this is quite dangerous. But you look at it, you know, a few decades down the line, and now suddenly we've got Philip in his 30s, who's in his prime, and, and you know, Edward's starting to get on a bit. Um, and... Uh- but this is, we conclude with a marriage. So if you do, the, yeah. Edward basically sixty something marries a teenager. Yes, um, yeah. So this, um, yeah, what happened? This conflict was threatening to get out of hand because it was dragging all these other places in. So um, the the Pope, I'm sorry, I can't remember which Pope it is. One of the yeah. Bonifaces, I think, um, yeah. offered to mediate, um, and everybody, I think. Both Edward and Philip had reached the point by this time where they both kind of wanted it to end, but neither of them was willing to back down in the face of the other. So the actual Pope offering to mediate kind of gave them an opportunity to go, oh, fair enough then. Um, So the Pope mediated, a peace was arranged, and, you know, as ever, this involved marriage arrangements. In this case, a double marriage arrangement in that Edward I, who was by this time a widower, um, would marry Philip's younger sister, -sister, half-sister, he he was old enough to be his new wife's grandfather, never mind father. Um, and his son, the future Edward II, would marry Philip's uh, sole surviving daughter, Isabel. So Edward I um, married uh, Margaret. And finally, they actually got on really well, despite the fact she was younger than most of his children. And she actually bore him two two more sons who were born when he was in his... His 60s, and it was apparently, oddly, quite a happy relationship, apparently, but you know, you never can tell. Um, and then after Edward I died, he was succeeded by Edward II, who decided he was happy to go along with the terms of this treaty. And so, as soon as little Isabel of France turned 12, which was the sort of minimum canonical age for marriage they they got married and this is where we end in in, in my book with a kind of epilogue which I've, I've kind of slightly cheekily entitled happily ever after dot dot <sighs> dot um because this is a happy wedding everyone's related to each other you know like we said earlier it's all lovely and it finally looks like peace is is gonna last this time and it's all gonna be great and um and you know that's what it looked like at the time and so, uh, 
Let me ask spoiler you a couple, alert. It yeah, didn't. <laughs> it, it didn't work out that well. Um, Isabel's, um, yeah, Edward the uh, Second. Isabel turned out to be, uh, you know, there was another diff- another difficult relationship, mm-hmm. even worse than Henry and Eleanor's. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Um, so, a, a couple questions, which you know, this is it's been a long time since I was thinking about this. Let me ask a, a few sort of, you know, uh, maybe they seem overly obvious questions, but. Um, Again and again and again, you've been describing marriages between kingdoms, mm-hmm. and then they're fighting five years mm-hmm. later. Yeah. So are these marriages really supposed to bring about peace? Because it doesn't seem like it. Doesn't seem like you say, "Oh, right, I married your sister, so now I I can't go to war with you." I mean, you're my brother-in-law. I mean, it seems like it almost enhances. Yeah, that- that that was how it was supposed to happen. I was mean, it really? We, was it really supposed to happen that way? Did, and it, it sort of depended again on the you know the the personalities of the individuals concerned. When Louis the Ninth was at one point in a in a position to kind of really get one over on Henry the Third if he wanted to, and he, he declined to do so, and actually supported Henry in in a uh, a, a conflict. And when his own uh, French barons told him off for doing this. He's on record as saying, "Well, you know, there, there should be peace. We're married to two sisters. Our sons, the next kings, will be first cousins, and we should therefore aim for a perpetual peace." But whether that was only Louis's, you know, kind of optimistic thinking, whether he was the only king who could think that way. But yeah, a lot of the other marriages went, you know, quite, quite wrong or not necessarily the actual marriages but the situations and you know this isn't it must have made life really difficult Mm -hmm. for the you know the woman concerned because what quite often happens is she's told with you know no not really much choice that she's going to go marry somebody she's never met and then within five years her husband and her father are at war with each other sure um and I know queens were expected to play these sort of intercessory roles, but yeah, you'd have to have some real diplomatic skills to work your way around that, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's right, and it doesn't seem it doesn't bother anyone to fight their first cousin. Um, Not necessarily, it, no. Because this gets into the whole personal attitude. This is where 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 we just left it is where um, you know there is this when you identify the kingdom with your body, mm. which. You know, we're we're into king's two bodies kind of territory mm-hmm. here. I mean, I mean, you can even see that. You go to the Tower of London, you watch the the best ever propaganda film for monarchy, uh, which is Elizabeth II's uh, coronation film. Um, and yet, and when you put on the ring, I always explain we put when she puts on that coronation ring, she's marrying the the, the nation. Yeah, she's yeah. Marrying, yeah. I mean, it's a there's a. I mean, it's a, it gets deep and powerful and mystical. But mm-hmm. you know, it, it it might go to your head. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, um, I suppose being publicly told that you are God's chosen one, yeah. Um, yeah, probably does something for your ego, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's it's really hard. Then, I mean, this is always hard to explain why this is different from what, um, say, James of Scotland and England, James the Sixth of Scotland, James the First of England, will cook up. Um, why this medieval monarchy is not an absolutist monarchy. I mean, John is an example of that. Mm. I mean that there's there's that your your personal control can this this personal story can only take you so far. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of people that are going to kick back. I mean, after mm-hmm. all, the Germans elect their king, 
So, I mean, that's, uh, and they're not the only ones. There are other people around Europe that do that. Mm-hmm. So, and although the French didn't do that, they did have a very strong custom of acting in in concert and in consultation with their nobles whenever there was a big decision to be made. For example, the future Louis VIII thinking, shall I invade England or shall I not? What happens in France is that you summon a council of nobles and they all get to have their say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why, I mean, the other one being being able to produce sons, but that is one of the reasons why the French monarchy was so stable um, throughout most of the Middle Ages. It was looked on in, you know, with envy from many surrounding kingdoms, um, the, the reverence in which their kings were held. Um, and I think part of that is that, yeah, they, they, they decided they had a good management style. They decided to work it, it, with their nobles rather than against it, them. That's interesting because that's not the way we—that's not the way people stereotypically think of a French monarchy as being consultative. And of course, by the seventeenth <laughs> century, by seventeenth century, they quickly got—they got rid of it. Yes, that, and look that's, what happened to the French monarchy what, after that. <laughs> that's what de Tocqueville said. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, so I, I want to conclude by—I mean. W- Let's talk. Let's one last time about fortune. I mean, this is where we were talking mm-hmm. about conting, contingency. If we were in like mm-hmm. a, a seminar or something like that, but I mean, uh, reading the book, and I know you, as putting this, re, writing the book, you must have been thinking a lot about contingency, the wheel mm-hmm. of fortune. Mm-hmm. Um, any last thoughts on that? Um, yes, it's. The monarchy, I mean, the future of the monarchy the, the, uh, and at the time in the Middle Ages did depend an awful lot on luck. You could be you could be the best king that there was, but if you and your wife didn't have a son, you've effectively failed. failed. Yeah. Um, and that depends on luck. But what, what these people had to do, and I say people advisedly because I mean men, women, children, everybody here, um, they had to get what they were given, what whatever fortune or God had given them was what they had to start with. But their challenge was to make what they could of that from the place where they started. But yeah, they were very much at the vagary of fortune. You know, your your son and heir drowning in a ship or being killed in the streets of Paris by a loose pig, um, you know, could, could affect all of your best laid plans. And you always had to have a backup plan and a backup plan and a backup plan. And the, the kings who were the the best kings, in my opinion, were the ones who could, you know, react to those unexpected events by going, um, okay, that happened, let's move to plan B. And, and it was like the ones who didn't really have a plan B um, that that suffered more because they only knew one way to act. And if that didn't work, they were just going to keep trying it, even though it was clearly not going to work. Um, so, yeah, the... I'd rather have a clever king than one who, you know, has a strong right arm and a sword. <laughs> My guest today has been Catherine Hanley. She's the author of Two Houses, Two Kingdoms, A History of France and England, 1100-1300. Kath, thanks so much for once again being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 